everyone. It's 7.30 p.m. in Tucson, Arizona. Welcome to the Stewart Observatory Public Evening Lecture Series. Thank you for coming out tonight. We appreciate it. It's a beautiful night, a little windy outside, but our telescope, the 21-inch Raymond E. White Jr. reflector, will be open for your viewing the white building next door. Uh, enter the doorway and go up two flights of stairs and they'll be looking at objects tonight through the telescope, and they'll look at the moon, of course, because we have a, we're a couple days past first quarter moon. Uh, however, I do not have the visitor center open because we're having the whole room, the ground floor of the old observatory, painted this week. And so the flat screen TVs are down, and the shutters on the, the wooden shutters on the windows are down. So it's a mess in there, so it won't be open this evening. Um, before I introduce tonight's speaker, I will remind you that there is one more lecture uh, for this spring 2022. It will be two weeks from tonight on uh, April the 25th, right? That's 11 plus 14, yes, 25th. However, do not be surprised if you get an email from us uh, that there may be a public lecture sometime in May uh, because of an announcement soon to come from the Event Horizon Telescope people. And so I'm going to push for them to do a public lecture either in May or June, uh, soon after they make their big announcement on the national media. We also welcome those of you who are watching us live on Zoom. Sorry that the UL, URL changed this afternoon, but if you're hearing my voice, that means that you actually went to our website and saw that the URL did change for tonight's lecture. If you have any questions, please type it into the chat box in Zoom and our speaker will answer those questions. Finally, I would like to mention that um, the very first Steward Public Evening, started by Professor Andrew Ellicott Douglas, occurred on September the 28th, 1922. So we're coming up I mean, this July, it'll be 100 years since the telescope was installed. In September, 100 years since our first public evening. And the official dedication was April 23rd, 1923. So we'll have the official dedication, 100-year ceremony next April. But I am, we're working on planning something really big. And we'll do it on the night of September 23rd, which I think is a we uh, uh, September 28th, which I believe is a Wednesday night this year. So we will have a special 100-year anniversary of the Stewart Public Evenings coming up in September. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce tonight's speaker. As you know, throughout this entire year, we've been getting you ready for James Webb Space Telescope from before the launch, through the launch. Hopefully tonight's speaker will have some update on what's going on with the James Webb Space Telescope. Uh, Ryan Ensley, I should say soon-to-be doctor, Ryan Ensley received his bachelor's degree in physics from Washington University, which is in St. Louis, Missouri. Then came here to the University of Arizona for his graduate work. He tells me he's defending his PhD thesis next month. And he will be the university awards degrees in May, August, and December. So he will officially receive his PhD this August. And then he's off to the University of Texas where he has won a McDonald Fellowship, and he will be the McDonald Fellow at the University of Texas at Austin. Uh, but so far, all of our James Webb Space Telescope lectures this spring have been about extrasolar planets, debris disks, how stars form, all things within our galaxy. Tonight, we leave, we're leaving the galaxy, Mr. Mitchell, ahead, warp factor seven, that's from the Star Trek episode where no man has gone before. Um, he's going to tell us about the first galaxies. Looking forward to James Webb Space Telescope. Soon to be Dr. Ensley. All right. Thank you very much. Can you all hear me in the back and everything? Okay, great. Um, yeah, so my name is Ryan Ensley. Uh, I've been here for now uh, going on six years. Um, and it's been an absolutely wonderful experience. Um, as I'm sure most of you know, whenever I first came here in 2016, 
James Webb was scheduled to launch in October of 2018. So I had planned for the bulk of my thesis to incorporate James Webb Space Telescope data and to really begin um, you know, looking at what kind of transformative understanding we can learn about our universe in the first galaxies from those early data sets. That didn't happen, but that's okay. Because what happened instead is that I was trained to use um, what we call wide area data sets. So whenever you look at very early galaxies, for regions I'll go into in a little bit, what you're usually looking at is a very small patch of the sky, and you're just pointing your telescope at it and just staring at it for days upon days upon days. What you can also do is use a telescope like the ones that are located about 50 miles south of here on uh, Mount Hopkins, the MMT telescope that has a fantastic um, spectrometer that allows you to look at fairly large patches of the sky with really good sensitivity, and you can still study those really early galaxies. So what we've done over the past five years, even without using WST, is we've really learned to exploit um, this other avenue towards studying the early universe that I'll dive into a little bit. But that just gives you a little bit of an understanding on where I'm coming from. Um, but of course, you know, I'm really excited within the next year um, and further on to start working on the James Webb Space Telescope data. And I'll tell you a little bit um, about what, we're, what we currently know about the telescope. Um, I am on the um, NIRCAM science instrument team. Um, so I get to be involved in meetings where I learn some things that uh, I'm not supposed to tell you everything, but I'll let you know the things that I think I'm allowed to tell you. So moving on, uh, let's talk about first galaxies. So first of all, I just want to ask the question, does anyone in here know the answer to how we are able to actually study the first galaxies? How is it that we're basically able to you know, go back in time and look at these things? Does anyone know? Yes. So that you can use the microwave background radiation to study the universe. This is true. Um, but specifically for the purpose of studying the first galaxies, let me just see enlarged slides rather than us seeing the screen. Oh, shoot. Um, sorry, one moment. We have a Zoom issue? Yeah, it's uh, like I have, they're seeing this alone, ah. but do you know how to make that happen? Because Jeez. I might try taking out a presenter mode. Maybe that will fix things. Okay. Um, presenter mode? I'm trying to see if we can make the projector see. Ah, Aha. There we go. Okay. We go. All right. Uh, technical difficulties resolved. So uh, thank you, those on Zoom who mentioned that. Um, is that? Yeah, he's, they're actually telling you how to fix the problem. Okay, good. Cool. <laughs> All right. I think we're good. All right. Um, sorry about that. So how are we able to go back in time and look and study the first galaxies? The principle of this is that light has a finite speed to it. So whenever you're looking at, let's say, the moon, the distance from here to the moon is 1.3 light seconds. What that means is that it takes light 1.3 seconds to travel from the moon to the Earth. Whenever you're looking at the sun, the sun has a distance of 8.3 light minutes from Earth. Whenever you're looking at the sun, you're seeing 8.3 minutes ago in real time. Now keep extrapolating that out to larger and larger distances. So you've got Alpha Centauri, the next closest star aside from our sun. That's 4.4 light years away. So the time it takes for light to get from here to there is 4.4 years. Let's talk the next nearest galaxy, Andromeda. Time it takes light to get from us from there, 2.5 million years. You can start to see how once we start going to extreme distances, you're actually starting to look back in time, okay? So whenever we're looking at Andromeda, we're looking back in time, 2.5 million years. And that's just the, that is the closest galaxy to us, okay? There are galaxies that we now know of that exist billions and billions of years ago, close to the start of the universe's history, okay? Some of our Zoom folks say it's kind of hard to hear the audio. I'm gonna turn up the volume. Okay. Hello? <laughs> we'll try that. All right. Uh, that does seem louder. Yeah. Okay. All right. So um, let me just quickly reiterate for those who might have had difficulties hearing this on Zoom. So light has a finite amount of speed to it. Um, and because of that, the further away you look, 
the further back in time you are effectively looking. Okay, so ne the nearest galaxy to the Milky Way takes 2.5 million years for the light from that galaxy to reach us. Right? And you can keep going further and further back in time. As I'll get to a little bit later on, we know that galaxies existed very, very early on in the universe. Um, and James Webb will tell us really when they first began forming. All right, so what do you need? Let me see if I can adjust this because that might help too. All right, so what do you need to um, identify and detect the first galaxies? Well, as I'm saying now, what you need is to be able to look very far back, very far distances. And as you probably know, uh, whenever you're trying to look very far away, that, that gets more and more challenging. So what you need is very, very good sensitivity, or in other words, a really big telescope, and really good instrumentation, really good detectors on the cameras and spectrometers on that telescope. All right. Another thing that you need is you need to be able to detect light in the infrared. Okay. And the reason for this is that as light travels through the universe, it gets shifted to redder wavelengths. All right. So the light that I'm seeing here from you all now in this room, it's around like 600 nanometers or something like that. Okay, the exact value doesn't necessarily matter. But as you start going to cosmological distances, as you start going to extreme distances out in the universe, that light gets shifted to redder and redder wavelengths to the point where our, we are not um, adapted to be able to see that kind of light. Okay, Most of the cameras that are on your cell phone, etc., they're only sensitive to the optical light that we can see. But what you need to be able to do is you need to be able to stretch your perception to be able to detect light that we cannot physically see. You need to adapt your cameras, your telescopes, and your um, detectors to be able to see that. Okay? So let me explain this a little bit more. So why the infrared? For those of you who don't know, the universe is expanding. Um, this is just a, a fact that we now know um, from cosmology, from the cosmic microwave background. Um, and that's in talking in and of itself, um, but please just take this for fact. That's what science tells us right now. Okay? Because space is expanding with time, that means that the further away something is from you, and this is only on cosmological distances, I'm not talking a few feet here, um, I'm talking billions of light years. Okay? Whenever you start talking about those kinds of distances, the further away something is from you, the faster away it is moving away from you due to the universe's expansion with time. Okay? And so what happens whenever something moves away from you? Some of you might be familiar with this thing called the Doppler effect. Um, I now have to turn off my mic and do things with speakers so that this doesn't overwhelm everyone. Uh, so please just hold on for me for a minute. Wait for the light. Okay. Hopefully what you heard is that the tone of that car horn changed as the car was moving away, moving towards us. Okay. It was a relatively high frequency sound. And then once it started moving away from us, then the frequency of that sound that we heard shifted to a lower frequency. Okay. It started sounding more um, like, you know, bass kind of sound rather than a tenor for those of you who are familiar with chorus. All right. So let me just play it again so that So nice little schematic there, kind of showing you uh, what exactly I mean here. So basically, as something is traveling towards you, the sound that it emits is the sound waves are getting effectively compressed okay, as something is moving towards you at a, a relatively high speed. Okay? And that just changes the frequency of the sound at which you hear it. All right? The same exact principle applies to light. Whenever something is moving towards you at a very, very high speed, okay, I'm talking something that's close to the speed of light, which we don't get to in normal life ever. Um, but whenever you're talking about things that are getting 
moved away from you due to the cosmological expansion of the universe, those kinds of speeds start becoming applicable. All right? And what that does is that whenever something's moving away from you at super high speeds, like a really distant object is in the universe, a really distant galaxy, the light from that galaxy gets shifted to redder wavelengths. All right? That's the basic principle of things. That's why we need to be able to go to infrared wavelengths to study the first galaxies. All right. Are there any questions? Is everyone? All right. Don't think anything. OK. All right. No questions on the chat either. All right. So where do we stand right now? A little bit of history. Back in the 1990s, the earliest galaxies that were discovered existed whenever the universe was about 6 billion years old or so. Okay? And for context, the universe right now is somewhere between 13 and 14 billion years. A lot of people will say 13.7 if you want a pretty precise number there. All right. Once we started getting the Hubble Space Telescope, um, I don't know if anyone's unfamiliar with Hubble Space Telescope, but it is the premier um, optical UV near-infrared facility out in space uh, that currently exists, right? and it has shaped astronomy for the past 30 years. Okay? It's been a fantastic telescope. What it allowed us to do in the early days is it allowed us to go out to whenever the universe was about 1.5 billion years old. Okay? And down here at the very bottom, I'm giving you a relative scaling. Um, you know, in human lifetime-ish terms, okay? So say the universe is 100 years old now. 1990s, we were able to probe back to whenever the universe was 42% of its current age, 42 years old if you're going with the scaling. All right, and then Hubble lets us go down to 11, 11 years, 11%, right? We're getting to like the preteen years of the universe, right? That's pretty cool. We can see that far back, all right? But what happens whenever we start upgrading Hubble? Hubble is in a low Earth orbit. We were able to send astronauts up there and saw some new instruments after uh, a couple of decades, all right? Really start improving this facility, even though it was already fantastic. And what do we get? Well, we get galaxies whenever the universe was about 3 to 5% of its current age, okay? And I'll give you later on in the talk where we currently stand on like the record holder of the earliest galaxy. And it's, it's pretty darn cool. But obviously, part of this talk is talking about what we get with the James Webb Space Telescope. All right? That's going to be really exciting because James Webb Space Telescope is specifically designed to go to redder wavelengths than the Hubble Space Telescope. Allows us to probe deeper, further back in the Earth universe than ever before possible with the Hubble Space Telescope. All right? We'll get to that a little bit later on in the talk. Um, I could immediately dive into why JVST is important, but I think that it's first important to discuss, you know, why this kind of science is really exciting, why we think it's important, and what do we really know now, and what do we expect JVST to tell us about uh, within the coming years, okay? So let me dive into why I think we should be studying the first galaxies. Obviously, I'm biased, because uh, I studied this for the past five and a half years. Um, but hopefully I convince you that this is some pretty cool stuff. So topic number one, very basic, galaxy formation and evolution. So we look out into the universe, even with the 21-inch telescope that you'll be able to look at tonight, and what we can see is a diversity of galaxies. All right? We have galaxies that look like spirals. We have these things called ellipticals, which look more spherical. We have these irregular galaxies, which don't seem to really have any specific shape or morphology to them, so we just classify them under this oddball umbrella irregulars. And then you've got these really insane systems, galaxy clusters. And what those are, are just a bunch of galaxies packed together in a really small space, cosmologically speaking. Um, but these are you know, places that are just the, the largest structures that exist in the universe. All right? So you have this complete um, diversity of galaxies that exist. And what we want to know is, how did they get there, right? We see these present day, but if we can look back in time, we can gain a better understanding of how these things formed. How did we get spirals? How did we get ellipticals? How did we get galaxy clusters, all right? So, some key questions. When did the first galaxies form? It's pretty, you know, I think that's a pretty uh, 
simple question to ask, but it, it's important. Um, did the first galaxies look similar to the ones we see today, like I just showed you in the images? And then how early did Milky Way-like galaxies exist in the, early, in the universe? Right? So the Milky Way is a galaxy that we live in now. Um, it's a spiral, as far as we know. It's kind of hard to look in, inside your house and infer what it looks like from the outside. Um, but to the best of our abilities, that's what we know right now. So I told you I'd tell you about the earliest galaxy we know. This is it. This is GNZ11. Right? And what that Z11 means is that the light from that galaxy has been shifted by a factor of 11 plus 1, so factor 12. It existed whenever the universe was 3% of its current age. All right, and that distance, I wrote it up there, I converted it into miles, 2 trillion, trillion miles. Okay? Take 2 trillion, take a trillion, take a trillion trillions, multiply it by 2. That's what that means. All right? This is a galaxy that's in the Ursa Major constellation. Some of you might be familiar with that. Um, but that's the current image of it from Hubble. It looks like a blob. That's the best we can do right now. I'll show you what James Webb will be able to do later, and it'll be pretty cool. So how do we know the distance of this galaxy? As I introduced before, there's this concept of the Doppler effect, something that makes light shift to redder and redder wavelengths. But basically, what we have is a cosmological model that tells us if we know the speed of an object moving away from us, we know its distance from us. It's a one-to-one -one relationship given the properties of the universe that we've been able to um, measure from things like the cosmic microwave background. All right? And the basic principle is this. If you have a very distant galaxy, the light from it is going to be more redshifted than the nearby object. That's basically all, you, all there is. There's just a, again, there's a relationship that tells you the amount of redshifting equals the amount of distance. And that is effectively how we're able to get the, the distance. So what you're seeing here is a spectrum of this galaxy. Whenever I saw this at a conference three years ago now, um, my jaw literally dropped because the earliest galaxy we knew of at the time was at a redshift of about 8.7. And then all of a sudden, we're jumping to 11 within the span of a couple of years. And that's, that's a big jump um, in a short span of time. Okay? This is really impressive. This was. I think two nights on one of the best ground-based telescopes that we currently have. And what you're seeing is uh, doubly ionized carbon emission from this galaxy. That's what these, these green bumps are and those white things there. Those black things, in case you're curious, are, are basically just an artifact of what happens whenever you, uh, you what, what we do is basically just shift the telescope a little bit while we're observing. Um, but because we see those black things, we know that that is a real a real detection. It, you could just have a noisy thing giving you those white blobs, but whenever you see the black ones too at those separations, that tells you, yes, that is a real detection. So this is really, really pushing the frontier of what we're able to do right now. Um, as I'll get to in the talk, we, right now without JVST, we can't do better. Another really cool discovery that was made in the past few years regarding the early universe was the detection of this extremely gigantic galaxy. Okay, this thing is 10 times the size of our own galaxy, and it existed whenever the universe was 5% of its current age. So Milky Way-type galaxies can form pretty early on, and that's kind of cool. Um, let's see. Forming stars at a rate of thousands of times that of our own Milky Way, something we've learned over the past decade or so, in part due to Hubble Space Telescope, is that very early galaxies were forming stars much faster than present-day galaxies. And in case you're curious, the reason for this is, is that forming stars requires what we call just gas. And all that is is basically just hydrogen, um, carbon monoxide, those kinds of things that you need to be able to uh, gravitationally pull together, and then you get a star-forming region, you start forming stars. And because the universe was just uh, filled with that kind of supplies very early on, started off with that, and it was able to form stars much more effectively. As time progresses, we now know, you know that, that supply of fuel that you need to form stars gets depleted over time because you have formed stars. And that's why galaxies today are less efficient at forming stars than they were in the very early universe. Um, 
Yeah, I don't know if some of you have heard about this because uh, it was discovered, I think the paper came out four years ago now. Um, but the people who uh, put out the paper on this in Nature, they were the ones, um, they were from University of Arizona. So that's Professor Dan Maroney and uh, his previous graduate student, Justin Spilker, who is now a professor at UT, or uh, Texas A&M. Yeah. <laughs> hey, yeah. Oh, yeah, good, yeah. <laughs> Ryan, could you tell us, please, what wavelength that image, is that an infrared or a radio image? So this, this, is, um, this is far infrared emission that's been shifted close to radio band uh, wavelength. So we, this is what we call the submillimeter in the observed. It's, it's a sweet spot in our atmosphere transmission um, between the far infrared and the radio uh, where we can detect these kinds of things. So this is not Hubble. Right. This is uh, a telescope located in Chile, um, an interferometer, and the reason why we're able to get, we're basically able to look at it with such fine um, structure, such fine resolution, right? It doesn't just look like a blob, you're actually seeing um, some elongation in the galaxy, right? Is because whenever you have an interferometer, like the telescope that was used to observe this ALMA, in case you're curious, um, you basically just have a bunch of dishes that are your little light buckets, but you spread them out across a plot of land, okay? And then that basically gives you a, a larger diameter telescope and allows you to see the actual structure of this galaxy. It's not something you're able to do with Hubble, but because James Webb's mirror is larger, which I'll get to later on in this talk, it's something that James Webb will be able to do better later on too. Okay, um, something else I wanted to quickly mention, because I think this is pretty cool. This galaxy, whenever the universe is 5% of its current age, we're, we detect water in it substantial amounts of water, right? I mean, you're not talking like a lake on a single planet. We're talking about water spread throughout the um, space between the stars in this galaxy. Okay, substantial amounts of molecular water that we're detecting, right? Obviously, that's an ingredient for life as we know it. Obviously, whether they're planets and all that kind of stuff is unknown. But this is something that I think is cool that connects to the questions of, you know, cosmic origins, how did we get here, these things like that that you can start studying by looking very on in the early universe, too. All right, topic number two, the formation and early growth of supermassive black holes. So some of you probably heard the term supermassive black hole thrown around. It's like being thrown around in cultures and songs. Um, so our galaxy hosts a supermassive black hole. Uh, as far as we know, basically every relatively massive galaxy hosts a supermassive black hole. Does anyone know or care to guess how many uh, masses, like times that of our sun, we're talking about here? Are we talking hundreds, thousands, millions, billions? Does anyone know? Four million is the correct answer. Yeah. So, Stag J star, that's what it was called, classified as back before people knew it was a supermassive black hole. Um, but yes, it has a mass four million times that of our own sun. Um, so that's pretty wild, right? How did those things get there? What's more weird is that the further back we look in time, we still see these things. Um, and we see ones that are thousands of times, even that, in our own Milky Way. So this is a paper that came out in 2015, ultra-luminous quasar with a 12 billion solar mass of black hole at a ratio of 6.3. That ratio of 6.3 translates to a universe age 5% of what it is now. So, how did that get there, <laughs> right? If we don't even know how the one in our Milky Way got there, that's, that's even more wild. Um, so how do they form so rapidly? This is actually one of the major outstanding questions of extragalactic astronomy right now. Um, we do not have a good answer to this. This has attracted a lot of observational and theoretical interest over the past decade. And a lot of people have tossed out theories. Um, I would say that they're all, uh, you know, on relatively equal footing. You know, some people postulate that what we need are the development of black holes that are thousand-ish times that of our sun that existed, that basically formed um, shortly after inflation. Okay, if you do that, then you can get these black holes. You can go to maybe less extreme scenarios, and you could say. You know, somehow, if there's rapid merging of smaller black holes or the on any year of the universe, um, then you can get something like a million solar massive black hole 
at, uh, you know, whenever the universe was like points, or yeah, what is that? I don't know. One-ish percent of its current age or something like that. I wrote the number, didn't I? Yeah, 0.01, sorry. 0.01% of its current age. Um, but yeah, this is, this is just a major question because there is a fundamental limit on how fast you can grow black holes. Uh, I don't really want to dive into the physics, but it, it's just that hydrogen atoms, which are what go into black holes in the centers of galaxies, they can only go into that black hole, they can only accrete so fast. Um, and that's how you get these curves here that basically tell you, if I have a black hole that's you know a billion, 10 billion times that of the sun at a certain epoch in the universe, I can extrapolate that back and get the, the value of a black hole mass that I must have had at some earlier time. And we just don't know how to form those yet. As I said, there's theories, but there's such a range of parameter space uh, currently available that we need more observational data to actually constrain and understand how these things form. And I'll get to you know, how JVC can help with that in a little bit. So another thing that we want to know is how common are these black, supermassive black holes in the other universe? So the ones that have been identified over the past decade or so um, are these things called UV luminous quasars. Some of you might have heard the term quasar. It's been you know, tossed around in the, the uh, Discovery Channel, whatever science um, shows. Um, but basically, these are objects where the supermassive black hole is accreting uh, material at a very high rate, and it's basically spewing out light as it does so. Okay, so it appears very luminous in the UV. And you, can, you can just take images across the entire sky, and because these things are so incredibly luminous, I cannot stress to you how insane um, a, a, an energy producer accreting black holes are. They are the, gravity is the most efficient energy producer that we know of, effectively. Right? Um, you can convert 10% of the mass energy that you create onto a black hole into light, basically, which is pretty cool. But basically what you can do is you can survey an entire sky and you can get those kind of blob-looking things in your images. Um, and if you do some spectra, because they're so bright, it's relatively easy. And then you can determine their distances with the spectra that I, I showed you before with that GNZ11 galaxy, something of the similar kind of process. But what we know is that these things are very rare in the early universe. We've identified about 50 of them, and that's across the entire sky. We have surveyed a large enough fraction of the sky with these kinds of telescopes to actually know their number density really well. Okay? So what we currently think is that these are very rare extreme objects. So maybe we don't have to worry so much about you know, how these supermassive black holes form. Maybe they're just little flukes in the universe. I mean, obviously, that's still exciting. But you know, if they're just weirdos, why should we care? Well, there's you know, a growing uh, discovery over the past year. Can I stress to you, year, OK? That what we found, we found two now what we call red quasars okay, in small patches of the sky. And these things should not exist if they are as common as they are in the UV luminous population. The probability of identifying these things are less than one in a billion, given what we know of the UV luminous quasar population of the early universe. Right? We should not have found them, but we did. We found two of them, not just one, two of them. I found one of them, which is really cool, and I learned in a conference a month ago about someone else who discovered a completely separate one in a similarly small field. And we're really excited about this. Because what this means is that these red quasars may be far more common than the UV luminous ones in the early universe. We still need more research on that, but that's at least what this suggests. And this does kind of fit into the evolutionary picture that people have been supposing about how you get quasars. Okay? The idea is that whenever you have two galaxies and they collide and then they exchange their gas and that really just triggers just a burst of star formation in those galaxies. Okay? And that, that burst of star formation, you've got these really large, hot, massive stars, and they're going supernova. You're spreading out material all throughout the galaxy. You're basically clouding the galaxy. You're creating what we call interstellar dust. Okay? And what that does is it basically just reddens things. Right? Not the same way the cosmological reddening happens. This is a, a slightly different thing. But it just kind of makes the galaxy a bit hazy. Um, but during that merging process, what will also happen, we think, is that it allows gas to funnel into the central supermassive black hole more efficiently. Basically, the gas is able to lose angular momentum during the merging process 
and more efficiently just funnel straight into that like point source of extremely high mass in the center of the galaxy just due to gravity, all right? And that's, what that's gonna do is that's gonna trigger a quasar phase. All the quasar phase is just a supermassive black hole accreting a lot of material at once. And because that, that galaxy is just shrouded by interstellar dust, you're not gonna see it as a UV luminous quasar. That dust, what it does is it takes the UV light and it re-emits it in the infrared, okay? So you're not gonna see it as this extremely UV bright quasar, but you will see it as an extremely IR bright, infrared bright quasar instead. Right? And those are the two objects that we've so far found. Again, have a really small field. And what this is doing is it's really pushing us to uh, you know, develop this narrative that maybe these supermassive black holes are far more common than we originally thought in the early universe. How did, <laughs> how did these things form? We still don't know. And I think this is something that really will be a topic of interest over the coming decade or so. Um, because this is something that has attracted a lot of interest already, but now we're finding they may be far more common than we originally thought to. So another topic is cosmic reionization. So um, just really quickly, for those of you who are less familiar with the physics, all ionization means is that you have an atom, say hydrogen atom, which is just a proton, this blue plus, and then an electron, the red minus, all right? If you fire a high energy particle of light, what we call photon, at that hydrogen atom, what it will do is it will free the electron from the proton. You're basically just giving energy to the electron to allow it to escape the electromagnetic bound of the proton, okay? And what we, do, what we call is that that means that that hydrogen atom has become ionized. Its proton and its electron are now unbound, all right? Whenever we think about the evolution of our universe on cosmological terms, what we know, right, there, there was some event, it's called the Big Bang, that kicked off our universe. Whenever that happened, the universe was incredibly small, incredibly dense, incredibly hot, okay? Everything was ionized, because you have all that energy bouncing around throughout the universe. No hydrogen atom is gonna stay neutral for long. As the universe expands, namely from inflation, um, you allow the universe to basically cool off. Okay, now the protons and electrons become bound again. You have, once again, your normal hydrogen atoms. But then there was some event. We don't know exactly when. I'll get to that in a little bit. But there was some event between after inflation, whenever the universe cooled off, to present day. Because present day, what we see whenever we look out in the universe is that basically every hydrogen atom is ionized again. So there was some event that happened between shortly after the Big Bang to now that ionized almost every hydrogen atom in the universe. And I want to stress that hydrogen makes up about 75% of all mass in the universe. It's, a very, it's the most common element, okay? So if we want to understand the evolution of our universe, we need to understand this process of what we call reionization. Let's see if I can get this video working. There it goes, okay. So here's just the idea of what we think reionization looked like. You had in the early universe, you had galaxies. Those galaxies have stars in them. Those stars emit ionizing photons, ionizing particles of light that are going to unbound those electrons from those protons, okay? As more and more of those high energy particles of light, photons get um, emitted out into the universe, you have more and more hydrogen atoms becoming unbound. And eventually, over time, that neutral universe, that all black picture that you saw in the beginning, then starts becoming ionized. This blue material, this is ionized gas now spreading throughout the universe. Okay? This is the picture of what we currently think reionization looked like. And we think that early galaxies, less than about 10% of the universe's current age are what drove this process. Right? And then at the end you can, you, know, you can see the individual galaxies, these uh, yellow dots. So I'll just let it play again, because I explained it while it was going. I think it's a nice video. Yeah, so the originally... Ryan, in that last uh, diagram you showed, you had something called the Dark Ages. Yes. That means all of the hydrogen was not ionized during right. the Dark Ages. That's when it was neutral. Yes. Okay. Yes, thank you for clarifying. Yeah, and that's, that's the, the black image at the beginning of this video. Yeah. But yeah, so we think it's a, uh, what we call a this is actually a technical term, a patchy process, right? So the universe is not ionizing 
uniformly throughout the universe. You have pockets of the universe that are ionizing first, and then eventually the voids of neutral hydrogen get ionized later on. And the reason for that is that galaxies are packed together. So a concept that we call clustering, which is due to gravity and the way the universe is formed. Again, this will be basically its own talk, that galaxies are not randomly distributed across space. You're more likely to find a galaxy close to another galaxy than you are in just like a random point of field. Okay. Because of that, that's why you get the universe basically ionizing in some regions first and not others. All right, so question that we've been trying to tackle over the past two decades or so is when did reionization occur? <clears throat> so what I want to introduce to you here, this will probably be the most technical part of my talk, is um, this concept of this uh, type of light. It's an emission line. Sorry. Fix that. It's this type of light, emission line, called Lyman alpha. Okay? It is whenever the electron in hydrogen goes from its first excited state to its ground state, basically. Um, technical detail. doesn't really matter super much. Um, but basically, all you need to know is that this line is one of the strongest lines emitted by early galaxies. So it's relatively easy to detect it um, from galaxies after the reionization era. So I'm just showing you here in this symbol schematic. All right. What happens whenever you go into far back enough into the universe before reionization was complete, back whenever the universe was still significantly full of neutral hydrogen, is that it becomes much more difficult to detect the Lyman alpha from galaxies in that era. And the idea behind this is that whenever you have a neutral hydrogen atom spread all across your universe, those Lyman alpha photons emitted by galaxies are going to be used to excite the electrons on those hydrogen atoms to the first excited energy level. So those Lyman alpha photons are going to be absorbed by the just diffuse gas spread throughout the universe and make it much more difficult for us to actually detect because it's getting absorbed along our line of sight. Right? But that means that we can use Lyman alpha as a tool to study when reionization happened. Over the past decade, my advisor was one of the people who was involved in you know, really kind of um, uh, cementing this observational signature of reionization. Um, as you go to higher and higher redshifts, as you go to earlier epochs, so um, further back in time is towards the right on this plot, right? Higher redshift is further back in time. Um, as you go further back in time, galaxies emitted Lyman alpha more often. And there are reasons for that. Uh, I don't really want to go into it, but basically they're uh, you know, easier to form stars, less dust. That's the idea. But then eventually, what happened is that around the redshift of six, around whenever the universe was 900 million years old, suddenly it becomes much more challenging for us to detect Lyman alpha from uh, galaxies. And what we think that is, is, is just the key observational signature that that is whenever reionization is happening. All right? So what you think is that reionization happened sometime within the first billion years of cosmic history. Now we want to ask, how did reionization occur? So I kind of touched on this a little bit. Um, but uh, basically what you have is the galaxies in the early universe were able to form stars much more efficiently. And whenever that happens, you form a higher fraction of these extremely massive stars, what we call O and B stars. Okay. So our sun is one of these G stars over here on the left side of this figure. But then there are stars called O stars, which are 15 to 300 times that of our sun in mass. And what that means is that they are 10,000 to 1 million times as luminous as one of our suns. Okay? These are just monsters that exist in galaxies sometimes. They're pretty rare in present day universe. But back in the early universe, we now know that they were relatively common. All right? And those OB stars, because they're so massive, because they're so hot, um, they produce a lot of hydrogen ionizing photons. And these, this is one of the main ways in which we think that galaxies were able to drive the reionization of the universe. So whenever you start thinking about the first galaxies, you should also think about you know, a key evolutionary stage in the history of our universe, reionization. Yes. What are the 
So the letters are just a, a type of classification of uh, stars. So um, there's this old adage that I, I won't say out loud, but it's, um, you know, the, the lower mass stars. It, it's, oh, be a fine girl, kiss me. Um, but yeah, uh, so O stars are the most luminous, most massive. Um, and then as you go down to mass, then you fill out that, oh, be a fine girl, kiss me thing. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. All right, so another question that we want to know is, what did reionization look like? So I showed you that simulation earlier on, but it, it's just a theoretical prediction. We really have been struggling over the past decade, longer, to really figure out what reionization looked like. How patchy was this process? How large were the ionized bubbles that formed in the early universe? Okay? And it's, as I said before early on in the talk, one of the things that I've been doing is uh, wide area research, right? Wide area studies of the early universe. Well, whenever you go to wide areas, you can start studying things on larger scales. So we can start looking for the largest ionized bubbles that existed in the early universe. And that will tell us about the sources of you know, reionization, about the first galaxies. But again, that also just tells us about the evolution of our own universe. So again, I want to harken back to this Lyman alpha concept here. Um, just kind of fundamentally, early galaxies in very large ionized bubbles will show stronger Lyman alpha than galaxies in smaller bubbles. And the reason for this is, is that whenever you have a galaxy in a very large bubble, as I'm showing here in the bottom diagram, that light is able to cosmologically redshift such that the neutral hydrogen on the outside of this bubble no longer recognizes it as Lyman alpha. It sees it as a different kind of light because it's redshifted so much. So it doesn't try to absorb it. Basically, that's the principle. So it allows those Lyman alpha photons to transmit through if you sit in a very large ionized bubble. So if you're seeing Lyman alpha from a bunch of galaxies in a certain region in the early universe, that's giving you a pretty good sign that you're looking at a very large ionized bubble. So over the past 15 years or so, we have learned that you have really, it's, it's pretty difficult to detect Lyman alpha at above a redshift of seven or so um, because of the universe just being a, a source of obscuration. What we found using the telescope on Mount Hopkins is nine galaxies in the early universe that showed strong Lyman alpha. These are just these yellow little peaky things that I'm showing here. All right. This is an incredibly high detection rate of Lyman alpha from galaxies in the universe. Usually you only detect in about 10% of galaxies you're looking at. We looked at 10, we saw it in 9. So 90% detection rate compared to the average 10-ish. That's a very strong signature that what we're looking at here is where one of the largest ionized bubbles existed in the early universe. And it's pretty cool that we were able to do this on a telescope in Arizona, I think, about 50 miles from here. Yeah. So the, just for context, the, the size of the bubble that we found is about, um, in you know, distance terms that might make sense to you, is about 100 billion times the distance from the Earth to the sun. Very large, right? Um, all right. So I've gone through you know, kind of these three key topics I'm uh, trying to interest you in this subject and trying to convince you why we spent so long and so much money in investing time into the James Webb Space Telescope, right? Uh, galaxy evolution, cosmology is one topic. Obviously, there's planets and you know, trying to look for other life and these kinds of things. Um, but this, this, at least I hope here, I've convinced you that this is one of the main subjects that I think you should be paying attention to whenever the JWST data comes out. So let's start talking about JWST. It launched. Yay. <laughs> um, right, like I said, I came here in 2016, and I was expecting it to launch in 2018. And I kept wondering when and when it would happen. And finally, Christmas Day last year, it launched, and we didn't know, but we got this beautiful picture. They, had, they did not tell us it was coming. Um, and it was, it was really, really nice to see it actually being launched. Um, okay, so let's start talking about why James Webb is so powerful. Uh, if I can get this video to play, I will. I don't think there's sound. There's not sound. Okay, good. Um, so basically what you want to think about, like, the mirrors on telescopes are basically light buckets. The larger the mirror, the more, like, rain you can effectively think that you're going to collect on a storm. The more light you're going to detect from a very distant kind of source, right? 
The mirror from James Webb Space Telescope is about three times in diameter than the Hubble Space Telescope. And you can see from that video um, context on human scales. Right? And whenever you get a three times increase in diameter, that effectively makes about a 10 times increase in area. I'm talking order of magnitude here, is that number? is different, but yeah. So that's a 10 times increase in sensitivity alone from just the increased area size of the mirror. But then what we also have are people who did a fantastic job of designing the instrument. And I'm very proud to say that uh, two key people who worked on the instrument are uh, here at the University of Arizona. So this is Marsha Riki. She's one of the professors here. And she uh, led the design of the Near cam, the near infrared camera on James Webb Space Telescope. So there are four science instruments. This is one of them. So Marsha led the design of one of four science instruments on James Webb Space Telescope. Her husband, George Rickey, like co-led the development of another instrument on the James Webb Space Telescope, the mid-infrared instrument. Right. So University of Arizona, this power couple owns effectively three-eighths of the science on <laughs> the science instruments on James Webb Space Telescope. It's pretty cool, right? $10 billion instrument, we own three-eighths of it. Yeah, they own three-eighths of it. We have nothing. Um, all right, so what's the big deal with James Webb, right? Why am I getting so excited? Um, as I told you, a 10 times increase in area, as I tried to allude to here, you know, fantastic people working on these instruments. They really made sure that these detectors are as sensitive as possible. You know, we've had 30 years to go from the launch of Hubble to the launch of James Webb. Obviously, there's been a lot of technological development um, in cameras, as obviously reflected on your iPhones, right? You have little pockets of like professional cameras that just sit in your, little objects of professional cameras that sit in your pocket now, right? Come a long way. And that's also reflected in the science instruments here. So, as I said before, Earliest galaxy existed whenever the universe was 3% of its current age. This is the limit of what Hubble can do. We can do no better. All right? This galaxy, because it is such a long distance, its light is being redshifted so much that we only detect it in the reddest band on the Hubble Space Telescope. All right? If it's at higher redshift, if it's further away, we literally would not be able to detect this galaxy. So we have reached the limit of what we can do with the Hubble Space Telescope. Right? So you can see here on this, uh, this, let me just point it with my mouse, that might work better. Can you see my mouse? You can, okay. Um, you can see on this band here, it's not detected at all. This is like an intermediate band where you barely detect it, and then you're actually getting the detection here, this little blob right there, that's the galaxy. All right? You cannot put this galaxy at a more distance, at a higher distance, and actually detect it with Hubble. What James Webb was designed to do. This is one of the main science drivers of the um, you know, scientific capabilities of James Webb was to be able to go to longer wavelengths to be able to detect earlier galaxies, to be able to characterize them. Not only are you gaining a factor of 10 in sensitivity, even more whenever you consider how fantastic the instruments are, but you're also going to longer wavelengths. You're ex beginning to explore a parameter space that has not been touched by Hubble, okay? So let's also think about the, um, our ability to really characterize these early galaxies. So if I take a picture of an early galaxy with Hubble, what I pretty much always see is a blob, an unresolved blob, right? It's great, we detected a galaxy, but we aren't able to really study it, to characterize it. What did it look like, right? It's just a blob. You can't really see much better because the mirror is relatively small. But whenever you have a larger mirror, you're able to resolve things better. That's what that galaxy will look like with James Webb. You're actually starting to see the actual structure of the galaxy, right? You're starting to see a compact core and then some kind of diffuse emission, a spiralish thing maybe, or in a regular galaxy. We'll be able to actually tell what these things are, looked like in the earlier universe. We'll be able to put them in context of what we know about galaxy evolution and formation. Right? That's going to be a major step forward. Another thing that I cannot emphasize how transformative this will be is that we will begin to finally have detailed spectra of the first galaxies. We will be able to detect the emission lines, several of them, 
from typical early galaxies. So far, we have really only been able to detect Lyman alpha, and even that in a rare subset. Okay, but now we're talking about the ability to detect carbon emission, oxygen emission, hydrogen emission um, from the earliest galaxies. We'll be able to tell how soon the ingredients for life first were born into this universe, right? Whenever the universe was created, all we really had was hydrogen and helium. But whenever you form stars and those stars go supernova, they pollute the universe with these ingredients for life. And we will begin to finally understand when those actually came to fruition, right? Another really cool thing about being able to do emission line spectra. Sorry, what? Did someone have a question? Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Yes. Yes. Um, so uh, to clarify the question for everyone else, I think that what you're asking is that say you don't necessarily have a fully fledged form galaxy yet, but you have just basically, you know, um, stars first being uh, formed, even though they may not sit in a larger galaxy, right? When did stars actually begin first forming in the universe? I see. Um, okay, so as far as detecting the emission from superheated gas, I actually don't know the answer to the question of how well we'll be able to do that with this, because I think part of the challenge there is that you're talking at such high redshifts that whenever you're thinking about really strong emission lines like the O3 and the H-alpha, that kind of thing, um, those will actually even then be shifted out of James Webb. But there are design plans for instruments that will be able to go to even longer wavelengths, but I think we're talking on 20, 30-year timescales there. It yeah. also will be very difficult for just hot gas. You need nuclear fusion reactions to generate the energy needed to emit the light. So you really need stars. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know if just a protostar would be even able to do that. Yeah. Um, I, I think those are questions for more on the future timescales of other telescopes. I don't think that's uh, something necessarily that people are thinking about with James Webb. Okay, so um, spectra, again, with James Webb. Another thing we'll be able to do with spectra that we have not been able to do before is we will be able to tell if the light coming from these galaxies is more coming from those hot, massive OB stars or if they're coming from accreting supermassive black holes. You can put galaxies on this diagram, which is just a, a ratio of two emission lines. How strong is your nitrogen emission relative to your H-alpha? How strong is your O3 relative to H-beta? Okay? And there's this well-defined little parameter space where hot, massive star-forming gal galaxies full of hot, massive stars lie versus galaxies where the light is driven by creating supermassive black holes lie. Okay? We'll, we'll put those very early galaxies on this plot for the first time and figure out how abundant supermassive black holes are, what kind of, uh, you know, what were the dominant drivers of cosmic reionization? Okay. All right, so I'm reaching the end of my talk, so I'll just uh, basically stop here. But what I want to show here is just a, a teaser of approved programs within the first year of James Webb Space Telescope's operations. This is m maybe 5% of the programs um, that are designed to study the very early universe. Right? And these are, to me, some of the most exciting ones. You have a program designed to look at that very early, extremely gigantic galaxy that I mentioned before that had the water emission. So we'll be able to study how it's forming stars, all right? study its star formation history. Um, you have uh, a plan to study one of the earliest ionized bubbles in the early universe, start figuring out when reionization actually kicked off. Okay? You have other plans to get really deep spectra of the, some of the most massive first galaxies that we know of, start figuring out when Milky Way type galaxies first began forming in the universe. Um, as I said before, you know, this is maybe 5%. Um, but if you're interested, you, know, you can just Google that there, and the first link will take you to the full list of approved programs for cycle one of JVST, if you're really interested. Um, you can click on a link that will give you like a little synopsis. It's probably going to be in pretty heavy technical terms. But you might at least be able to get an idea if you're really interested on what kind of science will be done within the first year. These programs, for the most part, are designed to study things that we think we know exist in the early universe. What I think is really cool about JVST's um, just 
you know, going down a factor of 50 to 100 in sensitivity relative to HSD, but also opening up a completely new wavelength range that has never really been probed sensitively, at least at these you know, extreme distances, we may find things that we never really knew existed in the universe, right? We just discovered within the, within the past year the existence of these really red quasars. That's probably only the tip of the iceberg on things that we don't know, right? I think that's what's really cool about astronomy, um, science in general even, is that whenever you start investigating these things, whenever you pour a lot of time and resources into it, you discover things about the nature of the universe that you had no idea was there. So um, with that, I will end my talk, and I will say stay tuned for fascinating discoveries. I think that here at Stewart, I can confidently say we'll be one of the most exciting places for uh, very early universe studies within the next five years. I have no doubt of that. Of that. This is one of the best institutions in the world for this kind of science. So stay tuned, and uh, yeah, happy to take any questions. Thank you. We have time for questions. If anyone listening to us on Zoom has a question, please type it into the chat box. Questions here from our studio audience. Yes. I'll bring the, I'll bring the microphone to you. And didn't watch it on Zoom. Was it taped so that yes. we could go back and watch it? Yes. It will show up tomorrow on the Stewart Observatory website. There is a little click that says podcasts of previous lectures. Other questions? Oh. You had shown uh, SPT 311 um, and mentioned there was lots of water. Does that mean that? you observed second-generation stars in that galaxy? Yes, almost certainly. Um, this is a galaxy that, like I said, has a mass of 10 times that of our own Milky Way. It is an evolved system whenever the universe is 5% of its current age. I mean, it's, it's undergoing this major merger event. As you can see from these um, two blobs here, they're, they're very likely merging, um, but this is uh, definitely a galaxy that has formed multiple generations of stars, I would say, yeah. Other questions? Yes, down here. So I was wondering with um, uh, spectra, when they fall off what you can see, yeah. um, those get longer and longer and longer wavelengths. They are still detectable. Um, does there get a point when they're completely undetectable, when the wavelength is so large there is no spectra to detect? Um, yeah, whenever the, the point at which there's no spectra to detect, that will be around a redshift of 40. Let me see. No, it's going to be way higher than that. It's five. I can do math. Um, <laughs> around redshift of 40. Yeah, yeah. So, um, like I said, the earliest galaxy that we know of now is at a redshift of 11. And redshift of 40, that's... We think galaxies started forming around a redshift of 20 to 30. Having a galaxy whenever the universe was at a redshift of 40 would be a very revolutionary finding. But that is definitely something that people are going to be even starting to look at with the first data sets, yeah. Any other questions? Yes, we have a question here. Yes, they took up uh, some Hubble time and looked at one spot where they didn't think there was anything there. And they found thousands of galaxies there. Is there any plan to do something similar? Yes, uh, that is actually, so I told you before that Marsha and George uh, built, well, Marsha built near cam, George co-led one. But that, what that effectively means is there, there's this thing called guaranteed time observing. Those who built the instrument get a good chunk of time to do their own science within the first year. Marsha and George combined got about 1,000 hours of observing time on their own. They got to take first dibs on where they want to point the telescope in the sky. People within, um, you know, just within the general scientific community for the proposals on their own programs that list that I showed you before, they could not do the same kind of science that they wanted to do. Marsha and George, what they decided to do is create a JVST deep field right on top of the Hubble deep field. That's only one of their science programs because they got so much time. But yes, that is something that we'll be doing. I don't see any questions from the Zoom audience, so I will remind you that our next lecture 
Two weeks from tonight, it'll be the last lecture of the semester on the 25th of April, uh, Dr. Megan Mansfield. She is a Carl Sagan fellow. You guys all know I'm from Cornell, right? So I like Carl Sagan. Well, she's a Sagan fellow here at the University of Arizona. She's going to talk about how she's going to use James Webb Space Telescope to try to detect atmospheres around rocky planets orbiting other stars. Yes. Uh, the telescope is open. If you've never looked through our telescope, it's the white building next door. You go in the ground floor door and up two flights of stairs, and there are two undergraduate astronomy majors who are telescope operators who will be happy to point the telescope to anything you'd like to see as long as it's up in the sky right now and visible from Tucson. Don't ask to see the Magellanic Clouds, okay? Because they can't show you. With that, we, let us thank uh, soon-to-be Dr. Ensley one more time. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you all for coming.